it's always a, um, a privilege to uh, to minister and to share, you know, the word of God in uh, whatever context and situation. Um, some of you know that um, in the past that you know, I've been a pastor and a preacher, and in those days past, I used to preach very regularly, almost every Sunday. But in recent times, I think in the last four years, I think it's been about three, four times. Um, so uh, it's uh, just an opportunity that uh, I've you know accepted when Mark. I was in Bangladesh at the time, and Kath said, oh, Mark wants you to preach you know, today. And I said, oh, really? Uh, I really didn't sort of have a, uh, um, an opportunity to, to say no or yes, but you know, it was sort of penciled in, and then it was borrowed in, and then here I am. And I thought a lot about what I was going to, to share. I thought I could get out some old ones, some really good ones that, uh, and some stuff that I still think would have been very appropriate. Um, and I thought and I prayed and um, I think the Lord asked me to, I believe the Lord asked me to share some reflections of my visit to Bangladesh. You'll know that I've um, just returned after three weeks in Bangladesh and um, it was a very good time with the family and um, packing up and they'll be back here in less than four weeks. Uh, I want to go back. You know, we'd been there before Kath and I had been there, but I want to go back to experience the culture and the life uh, a second time because going the first time, it's a bit of a shock. The second time is a bit of a shock, but you're more aware of what's going on there. And... Um, the second, one of the other reasons of the timing was that I wanted to go and visit during uh, Eid, if, I, if that goes. Is it on? That way. So I'll hold it up. Okay. Eid al Ahaza. And uh, it means a festival of, of, of praise. And um, you'll see the, you know, the crescent, you know, there, um, uh, very um, uh, Middle Eastern. And um, it's celebrated uh, during the, you know, the Islamic month of Jewel Hajjah on the 10th day. And the first phase of the moon, and that's you know, the, the crescent. And it's all part of the Hajj. That's a pilgrimage to Mecca. You've all heard of you know the pilgrimage, that uh, is part of the, uh, the the fifth pillar of Islam, a religious duty, um, to be carried out once in a lifetime by able body and those who can can afford it. And uh, you know that's I did. I wasn't there. <laughs> but that just gives you a scene. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes on. It's a sign of solidarity with the Muslim world and submission to Allah's will. And there's a lot of preparation that go goes on, you know, the first 10 days, and then the 8th, 9th, and 10th days, there's this pilgrimage that takes place. And on the 10th day, there's Eid, not to be uh, confused with Eid 
that, that happens after Ramadan, which is probably roughly about six or eight weeks you know, before um, this uh, very special you know, period. It's a celebration of sacrifice, of prayers, and memory of the sacrifice of Abraham, who sacrificed, um, uh, offered up Isaac, and, um, and God provided, you know, in the biblical story, an alternate sacrifice, and uh, the Muslim um, understanding they've made some deviations there. It's all about self-sacrifice, of um, the, however difficult and painful it may be, in order to uh, obey Allah's commands. And it simply means joy. It's a time of joy. And, um, and at this time of Eid in, um, in Bangladesh, at the same time in Saudi Arabia and, and in Mecca, that you know, the sacrifices are being made. Now, so having a love for animals, I've, this is my experience of Eid in Bangladesh. And that's how they transport them. You know, they come from all over the country. I think there's something like you know, millions upon millions of animals are sacrificed. It's, um, they've, uh, they come to cattle markets like that all over the place. And I visited three, having, an ex again, an interest in, in cattle and you know, these sorts of things. I walked through the markets and, and, and just saw weird and wonderful and beautiful you know, creatures. And uh, the sad thing is that some of the genetic you know, potential is just, you know, just done away with you know, very quickly. And then the, um, someone sees an animal they like. They may have other customs or other experiences in other countries, but this is what happens in Bangladesh. They go to the, the traders and there's a lot of corruption that goes on at that point um, you know, between the seller and the buyer. And it's just like the money traders that Jesus, you know, uh, upended the. Yeah, it's exactly the same, you know, sort of principle. They do the wheeling and dealing, as such. And then the poor animals have to be walked home. And I say walked home. Some of them are kilometres upon kilometres. You know, we're talking about darker. You know, here down the roads, and uh, and uh, you can see that one there. It's got sore feet. A lot of these have been on sand and dirt and they haven't been on concrete, and you walk them three or four kilometres plus, or some of them up to 10 kilometres, you know, it's quite painful. And that there is the main street. It would be the equivalent to um, uh, just coming out of Burnley you know, Tunnel. You know, it was a King's, yeah, King's Way, yeah. There's not much traffic there, but, you know, three seconds later, you know, there's traffic everywhere. And they walk in all these, you know, animals home. And some of them have delivery by truck, you know, the wealthy ones. And where we stayed was in a very wealthy, you know, you know area. Um, goats as well. And then they are tied up. And this was taken, you know, the night before. And this place had four of them in their front yard. Uh, I had to take this picture. The, one of the biggest bulls I've ever seen. Yeah, you know how tall I am. It was it was huge. Um, and you see, it's quite well to do, affluent, you know, you know, areas. And this is repeated right throughout, you know, the upper class, lower class, uh, country, rural, uh, metropolitan areas.
Then on the morning of, of Eve, there's prayers, and that was taken uh, outside the apartment of the unit where my daughter and son-in-law stay. We have a moss alongside. Um, and there's the mufti. You know, notice the you know the the sword and and the blade. Um, as you said. The next, I, I took a lot of pictures, and some of them are fairly gory, but I've spared them. The next two pictures are very telling of what happened. It's a very communal event. Um, you know, the in that just that space, there was probably about eight animals that were sacrificed. You know, just in the street. Um, you see the fellow with the white hat on. He's the you know the mufti. He's the you know, the priest that, you know, does the first incision cuts. Um, and I was part of this. And I, I saw many rituals and many sacrifices, you know, that morning. It just happens. It's just a, a, a streets filled with blood. Again, the same picture, different angle. You can see they're very well to do. Um, you know, the whites are the, the sacred, not the sacred, but, the, you know, the prayer dress of, of people. Um, the lady down the front here is a street person uh, who is allowed to take, you know, the remains of what people don't, you know, want. You know, see, it's awful there, and um, and they're just in the process of sacrificing. The thing that that challenged me at that point when I took that, I took that picture and I just stood there. And something just hit me. What am I doing here? What am I actually? Do, what do I actually believe about Christ's sacrifice and these sacrifices that were being made? Because I found my my thinking starting to twig in the sense of if I was a Muslim, what sort of bull would I sacrifice? And suddenly it just hit me, I'm not a Muslim. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reality between what was actually sort of happening at that point and what I had been led to believe to be true and what I experienced in my heart, there was an instant clash. And I couldn't wait to get home to read Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. And that's what I've been digesting in the last two weeks. And that's what I want to share with you, you know, this, this morning. How do I just turn that off for a little while? Yeah. 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 I want to turn, if you have your Bibles, I want to read from Hebrews chapter 9 and starting from verse 11. There's a lot of stuff here, and I'll only skim over the, um, you know, the basics of it. Verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place. Once for all by his own blood, 
having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, and those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while one who made its living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremony. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies for the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was made, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with a blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear to the second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Can we say Amen to that? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that sometimes in life we are challenged. Challenged to think more deeply about our faith and what we actually believe by the circumstances that we face and that we encounter. We thank you for these times. Not only do they challenge us, but they strengthen us. They develop a new sense of the way in which you work in this world, the plan of salvation, that you have provided for us a great Redeemer, and his name is Jesus. Together, in, together this morning, Father, we want to affirm in our hearts that this is true. We want to learn more. We want to develop uh, a curiosity that is motivated by your spirit to, to dig into these things, to understand what it means that you sent Jesus to be our Saviour, our Redeemer, a sacrifice that has been paid once and for all, that we may live with you forever and ever. 
We pray for enlightenment and revelation this morning. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the letter to Hebrews is a um, very complex letter. And it's a letter to the Jewish community that was to show that they could leave Judaism. See, a lot of these Christians, Hebrew Christians, had come to faith, but because of the persecution and the opposition that they were under, they wanted to revert back to Judaism because that's what they knew, that's what they, they experienced, that's what they grew up with. And um, the letter to the, the Hebrews is to say, look, you, know, you can abandon all these sacrifices all these you know, ideas about priesthood, uh, mediated priesthood, all the rituals that belong to the Old Covenant, and abandon yourself to Christ. But in order to, for them to do this, they, it had to be demonstrated to them that Christ was superior to Judaism. The Christ covenant is better than the Old Testament covenant. The Christ priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. The Christ sacrifice is superior to all other sacrifices. We can contextualize this today that, that we can sort of build up all sorts of understandings about the way in which the world operates, the way in which we become religious or activate our religious inquiry. But we are challenged to think Time and time again, that Christ is supreme in all things. Amen? That Christ is superior in all things, above all things. <laughs> See, the Old Testament covenant was unable to gain access to God. And this is what the new covenant, the new arrangement, the new agreement was designed to do. That we have now full access to God on an eternal basis. The sacrifices that the Old Testament covenant were uh, being offered were unable to wipe away sins, from the sins of the people. They only covered them in a temporary way. Jesus' sacrifice was only done once. And it totally took care of the sin for all eternity, for all people and all times. It covered, it blotted out, it removed the sin and its penalty and its pollution and its power. Something that the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the sacrifices that I witnessed in Bangladesh three weeks ago remind me a lot of the Old Testament principle. It is Old Testament principle. They can never blot out. They can never remove sin, as I'll show um, later on. And Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 14, says that Jesus' sacrifice opened up a way, a new way, a better way, the only way to God. Now, there are three important points that I want to make, and two up front and one at my conclusion is that religion simply means what you observe or the behavior that you do in order to gain access or, or to have a relationship with God. That's simply what religion is. 
And the whole purpose of religious activity is to bring ourselves into the presence of God, to make ourselves right with God, to have that intimacy, to have that relationship with God. But the thing with the new covenant is it's not what we do, but it's what God does in us that makes a difference. That is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. That God works in us. His grace comes to us. His love comes to us in an eternal way. And we know it, we experience, and we know that it is true. And the second thing is that there can be no religion, whether you're talking about you know, the, the Muslims, you're talking about the Hindus, you're talking about the Christians, you're talking about the animists, you're talking about whatever race. There can be no religion without sacrifice. Sacrifice is key, is pivotal to any you know, religious experience or expression. And from a Christian point of view, from a biblical point of view, that our access to God depends, demands that we are pure, that we are without sin, we're spotless and we're blameless. And the scriptures tell us that when we sin or if we sin, we will surely die. Because when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God said, you know, you will die, you have died, you have died in your relationship with me, you're on your own. Not only will you die in your spiritual relationship, but you will die in your physical relationship as well. And so if we want access to God, if we want a relationship with God, this whole thing of sin has to be dealt with. Because God cannot look upon sin. He cannot look upon us who are sinful, willful, rebellious beings, whatever culture, whatever religion we are. That has to be dealt with before we have access to man, to God. And the writer of Hebrews declares that Jesus' sacrifice is far greater, is better, is more effective than all the other sacrifices. Whatever you do, whatever you think, whatever you see, whatever I saw in Bangladesh, Christ's sacrifice is far greater, far better, far uh, more effective, I can't think of any more superlatives. So what are the elements of the sacrifice that Jesus made to make it greater and more effective? And there are four things. The sacrifices that relate to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant relate to ceremonial cleansing on the outside. But we know that Jesus' sacrifices cleanses us from in, within. He cleanses us, our hearts. Not only does he give us a new heart, but he cleans us. He washes us from top to toe by his spirit. There is inner cleansing. There is inner purification. There's not just the ceremonial cleansing, which the, the blood of bulls and goats or whatever action you may take, that's outward and it's symbolic and uh, it's not powerful, it's not effectively. 
And often I, I've thought in the last, um, you know, after, you know, Eid, that, that these people have sacrificed, they've done the outward external thing, but inside they would be still torn with remorse and guilt and regret. They would have no confidence of their intimacy and their access and their relationship with God or Allah or in that case. The door remains closed. So with Jesus' sacrifice, we are cleansed from within, not from without. You see, the pollution of sin, the stain of sin, runs deep. That's true, isn't it? It's not just carrying the consequences of a guilt, but when we sin, when we do wrong, it, it really gets in our hearts, our lives, and we can't get rid of it. That's the pollution, the stain of sin. But the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice, he cleanses us within from all that pollution, all that dirt, all that stain. Such <laughs> is the power of his sacrifice. That's wonderful, isn't it? Is it? The second thing is that Jesus' sacrifice takes the load of guilt from our conscience. I've already alluded to that. See, the animal sacrifices will always leave man estranged from God. It's just like taking a Panadol when you've got a broken leg. It just soothes it for a little while. It doesn't fix the problem. It's insufficient. Christ's sacrifice demonstrates that God is both just and love, just and love. And his motivation is always love. I'll develop this a little later. But just to say that by Christ's wounds by his sacrifice the penalty has been paid once and for all amen is that good news and the third thing is the sacrifice of jesus bought eternal eternal redemption see we are bound with sin and the dominance of sin in our lives but through jesus death he the purchase paid price or the ransom was paid and set us free and God looked upon Jesus and that sacrifice that Jesus made that day and you know what he was pleased he had done the work that the father had sent him to do and Jesus in his own words on the cross he yelled out it is finished I've completed the work, I've paid the penalty and through my sacrifice there is a new way, a new access and through that act of humiliation and using Paul's words that God gave him a name that was above every name and that God exalted him above everything. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, not just in terms of the physical experience and the realities of, of this world, of the context of his crucifixion. But through all eternity, he is now King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. Amen. So his sacrifice was effective, not only here, but God raised him and placed him in a, a place of exaltation, of exaltation throughout all eternity. And the fourth thing is that the sacrifice of Jesus enables mankind to live a life of death and sin and bondage and live a life that is full and pleasing to God. Through Jesus' sacrifice, the power of sin has been broken. I do not live this life in the flesh. I do not live this life bound by sin and guilt and the pain and, 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 the, and the suffering that it caused. I live this life because Jesus lives within me. Amen? And he empowers me to live a life that is pleasing to God. It's not a life that I have to strive and I have to struggle. But the effects and the efficiency of his death and of his resurrection now live within me, you know, a believer, a follower of Jesus. So what does the new covenant mean today for us? The new covenant is beyond space. The Old Testament system and its regulations were limited to one place at a time. The tabernacle, the sanctuary made of hands. And let me illustrate this with the, 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 um, the understanding of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was limited to certain places and certain times and, and, and aspects of, of, of ministry. But now in the new covenant, this new arrangement that has taken place, it is beyond space. It's beyond what we can see. You know, God is working, you know, in, in, in Bangladesh now and he's working here, you know, in officer. He's working in all parts of the world. He's working in your life and he's working in my life. He's working in our family's life, wherever they may be. God is not limited by space, and this has been part of the new covenant, the new arrangement. This whole dear idea of a sacrifice operated in one point of time has gone. It is now effective for all time and all places. You see, heaven is the realm of the spirit, and our souls have been joined with God's spirit in heaven. We have access to God, to the holy place where God dwells. See, heaven is not some place that we go to in outer space when we die. When Jesus, by Spirit, makes the soul come alive, heaven comes into our hearts, into our lives right now. Amen? I like that old song that we used to sing and it dates me. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. God comes into us and heaven comes into us. The kingdom of God, in another, in, using another illustration, comes within us. God reigns within our hearts and our lives. You couldn't have that in the old covenant system. It was confined to the temple, the sacrifice thing. God's sacrifice in Jesus broke through all that beyond space. And also we are now seated with Christ in heavenly places. Heaven is our dwelling. 
Heaven is our dwelling. We have this dimension now, but we wait for the total fulfillment, the total revelation, the total experience of that in the new heavens and the new earth. See, Christ works in and through me and is never limited by space. He appears now before God on our behalf. He appears to us while living on this earth. Whether I'm on this earth, whether I'm in death or going through the process of death or in heaven, you know what? God is with me. God is with me. Whether it is in this life, in death, or in the life to come because of Jesus' sacrifice. The second thing is the new covenant is beyond time. The Old Testament required repetitious and endless sacrifices. You know, as soon as you committed a sin, you had to pay for it. You had needed another sacrifice. And I thought of an interesting example of this a um, couple of weeks ago you know, during Eid. They would um, offer their, their sacrifice and they would pray to Allah and uh, uh, they would um, commit the family uh, as a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, one bull equaled seven souls and one goat equaled two souls. Um, and I thought, well, they're offering these, um, these sacrifices and then the the owner of the uh, you know the bullock would uh, uh, have an argument with the butcher, the way in which he was cutting up, and I thought they'd have to do another bullock straight away to have atoned for their sins, you know the you know the logic. But with Christ's sacrifice, it doesn't require repetitious sacrifices. His sacrifice lasts for all time. It's contemporary, offered once and for all at one time in history, but its effects, its meaning, its blessing is available at any time, both forward and backward from that point of history. See, the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. They are symbolic acts where man's faith was made visible. You see, Christ's cross is eternal. To, eternal. In God, there is no time. There's no past, present or future. There's only one time that is eternal. And God offered up his son as an eternal sacrifice for all time that goes from the beginning of the, of the ages and even before that for all eternity. <clears throat> it lasts. For all eternity. Can you get your mind around that? It's wonderful. And Christ did not go into an earthly holy place like the, the Old Testament priest. He went directly into the presence of God for us. He didn't go into a place that was made of hands, that was made, with, made of, of stone, that was made of tents like the Old Testament. He had great access into the very presence of the holy of holies places, into the very presence of his Father. And you know what? He took us with him.
Because if we are in Christ, we went with him into that presence, meaning that we now have access to God through his blood, through his death. Because of his perfect sacrifice. Is this amazing stuff? The third thing is the new covenant is beyond judgment. And these three things you know, uh, beyond time and space and judgment are found from um, verse 23 and I'm summarizing them. There's one appointment in life that we'll never escape from. You know what that is? Death. And this is what the scriptures say. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. You know, Jesus the man had to die. And he died once. What do the scriptures say that happens after death? Judgment. And Jesus' death on the cross, he faced judgment on our behalf. Absolutely and totally. If you take responsibility for your own actions and paying for your own sins after you die, you face a horrible judgment. You face a horrible judgment, a second death and separation from God. But if you take the offer of Christ's death as a substitute dying in your place, that when you die and when you come into the presence of Jesus, you will not experience judgment, you will experience joy and blessing and life evermore with God. There's a wonderful picture in the Old Testament that pictures this of, of the high priest of going once a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies. He would purify himself. He would take off his robes and vestments and put on you know, a special uh, robe that signifies sacrifice. And he would go into the holy place with a lot of fear, a lot of tremor. Would the sacrifice, would the preparations be acceptable? And if they weren't acceptable, the whole nation of Israel would be wiped out. Such was the solemnness of that occasion. The high priest would then bring the blood of the sacrifice to face the judgment of God. Can you imagine the dynamic of that situation, of the priest being in the holiest place here on earth, encountering God, knowing that he was sinful, knowing that Israel, the people of God, were sinful and standing there with a basin of blood. Is God going to accept this? It's a terrifying thought. Is God's judgment going to fall upon us and just wipe us out? And we know that God was merciful. And then the priest would come and appear, not dressed in sacrificial robes, but he come rejoicing and the people would see that the priest was still alive. What a wonderful picture here 
that we have of Christ. It says, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Do you get that picture? That Christ has taken the judgment and the penalty for our sin upon himself. He hung there as the spotless lamb of God. God's judgment and anger was poured down upon him for all time, for all people. I visited Bangladesh, who has, has, I think, 160 million people in the size of Victoria. You multiply that over a whole period of time and peoples, the millions upon millions and millions of people. He bore the sins of the world upon his body. God's anger was thrown down upon him. And he bore that in his own body. You see, forgiveness necessitates death. There can be no forgiveness without death. There can be no remission of sins, redemption, without someone giving up their life. And Jesus gave up his life. And he says, the scripture says, he appeared. He wasn't consumed. He wasn't um, annihilated by God's judgment. What the scriptures say, he was raised to life and he now lives forevermore. And in the second appearing, Christ's second coming, he will come not to judge us, but to bring the full realization of salvation. Amen. But those who are our Christ will live in terror and fear. You see, the cross has already passed judgment on our sin. That's how effective the sacrifice of Jesus is. Both past, present and future. There will be no more judgment upon sin because that has been taken place in the cross. Why? Because we died in Christ. You see the picture? You see the reality? That when Jesus died on the cross and because of our faith in him, we are joined to him and with him because God's judgment has been poured out upon his son and we have been released from that judgment and that we are now free. <clears throat> you know, on the hill of Calvary, there were three crosses. There was the thief, the political activist, and Christ in the centre. You know, there should have been one other person there, and his name was Barabbas. The courts of the day declared him guilty and he should have been there. But he was a free man because Jesus took his place. You see, the cross was prepared for you and me. I deserve to die, but now today I go free because someone hung there in my place. What a perfect sacrifice that goes beyond space, time and judgment. Does all this make sense? What a perfect sacrifice. What a wonderful sacrifice. 
And the third thing and last thing in conclusion that I want to say is that the world's experience are just pale shadows and reflections, imperfect copies of the realities. Oh, that shouldn't be there, but it should. <laughs> Religion, observed behaviour, is about gaining access to God. There can be no religion without sacrifice. And this is what I want to close in. This world is a pale and imperfect reflection of the realities of eternity. The purpose of writing Hebrews was to bring mankind into the possession of the realities. These Hebrew Christians were concerned with ritual and legalistic sacrifice and worship, and it was inadequate. And the writer of Hebrews makes this choice. You can have the shell or you can have the real thing. Now, when I was in Bangladesh, I didn't have my wife. And um, I, I didn't have a picture with me. But I had access to pictures on the internet. And uh, not that she's on the internet, but yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> Now, she's not the real thing. That's just a picture. Now, she can't cook. That picture can't cook. She can't care for me. She can't love me. You know, um, uh, I, I can kiss the picture, but, you know, it's not really satisfying. <laughs> it's not the real thing, but here's the real thing. You know, we have a choice today of whether we just put up with a shell of our Christian experience or we can experience the real thing. We can have the externals of our faith and our Christianity that don't touch the depths of our soul that don't have access into those heavenly places that I've been talking about. You can abide by the rules and be bound them, or the truth can set you free. Hebrews says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from the acts that lead to death? so that we may serve the living God. Do you realise that the Trinity was involved at the point of crucifixion? Certainly the Father looked down upon his Son and was filled with grief and compassion, but also poured out upon him the wrath and anger that, deserved, that was uh, deserving of sin. And the Son was there taking it all but the Spirit was there as all. How else would we experience the reality of an event that happened 2,000 years ago now? Good question. How would we experience the reality and the dynamic that I've been talking about 2,000 years ago now? 
the Spirit of God was there watching, witnessing, taking all this information, all the stuff into the very presence of Father God. And what happened at Pentecost was the Spirit of God was poured out upon all flesh. And the dynamic of the cross, the substitutionary nature of the cross, that Jesus died in our place. What happened there? That we are set from, free from the pollution and the power of sin. That, that dynamic is not just cerebral things. It's not ritualistic, but the actual dynamic that we now have pure access and, and, and unblemished access into God is brought to us now through the eternal action of the Spirit in our lives now. It's not external. It's real. Because the Spirit was there and he brings all that into our experience now. It's not wooden. It's not a shell. It's not make-believe. It's true because we know it in our hearts. conclusion this morning of our service I want to play a reflective song it's time to put a new song in our hearts it is, comes from Psalm um, 51 I think it is and uh, Psalm 32 from David where he'd sinned and God, he cried out to God God create a new spirit a right spirit within me see there was no forgiveness for the sin that he committed of adultery under the Old Testament covenant. He was dependent upon the mercy of God. And he cried out, God be merciful to me. Put a new spirit within me. And it's my prayer this morning that God will create a new spirit within us. Not externals, not the shell, but the real thing. 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 But the real thing.